Congratulations to our graduates, to Edith and to Krista. Uh, I remember uh, when Krista was born. That's how long ago that I remember. So it's good. And it's even farther back when I graduated. They actually gave me a real sheepskin, you know, not just a piece of paper. No, I'm kidding. But uh, it's a great time, a great uh, time of uh, completion. Graduation means completion from a task, and yet I like to think of it as commencement because commencement means that you're launched into the next stage of life, and uh, that's really what it's about. And so I challenge both of you young ladies and the rest of us to be lifelong learners, whether you're in a formal education setting or just continuing on as God prepares you for a lifetime of service and ministry and blessing as you continue on. Well, I have a gift for you here today. And it's just a little bit of an admonition, maybe an exhortation from God's word. Uh, But if we could all gather up, and I would like to take Krista and Edith and the rest of you, if we could all get on a jet and go to New York City, uh, I would dare demonstrate to you there's a very powerful example of what it means to have the weight of the world on your shoulders. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, and maybe in your future, uh, Edith and Krista, you will feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, whether it's responsibility of academics or family, relationships, whatever it may be. But all of us from time to time feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. And there's a great illustration there. We would fly into New York City and go downtown, down the Rockefeller Center, And there in front of it used to be called the RCA building, but now I understand it's called the GE building. But in front of it is a statue, is a sculpture of the Greek god Atlas, Atlas. And he's got this giant globe on his shoulders and every muscle is straining. He's holding up literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. What a city for that to be in because you think of New York City and some 8 to 10 million people who live there and work there. There are probably a lot of people there who feel like Atlas, whether it be a city filled with people uh, trying to work on Wall Street or the United Nations or the multiplicity of businesses that exist there in that great financial district just trying to get through life. And so Atlas is a picture of what it means to try to carry the weight of the world. Now, that's not anything to do with the positive side of this because Atlas, if you know your Greek mythology... It was not an act of courage for him, but it was really a curse upon him that he had to carry the weight of the world. And so there it is in Rockefeller Center. And we would leave there and we'd go across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there's another statue in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it is a portrait or a portrayal of an eight or nine-year-old Jesus Christ. And in that sculpture, Jesus in one hand is holding a globe, the world very easily just holding the world with no strain or no stress in his hands that are designed to carry the weight of the world. I was reflecting upon an ancient church father. His name was Gregory of Nyssa. He was a fourth century uh, preacher and theologian, and he preached a sermon on the passage, uh, the Beatitudes out of Matthew, and it goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as I reflected on that, uh, he suggests in his sermon that it should be understood, blessed are the poor in spirit or poverty of spirit, as voluntary humility. Voluntary humility. And that goes against our fleshly grain, doesn't it? Especially in the turbulent times that we live in. 
You know, it's every man and woman for themselves. As we see in the media, in politics, everywhere we look, it is the elevation of the individual, of the self. And that's the culture that we live in. But humility is a quality, and it's not weakness because Jesus was humble and he certainly was not weak. But I think, uh, don't think of humility as something that can be achieved easily without practice. And uh, quite the opposite, uh, humility requires more practice and effort than any other highly sought-after character trait in our lives. Uh, the moment you start thinking of yourself as humble, you aren't, is the way it goes. Uh, but uh, humility's opposite is the sin of pride. It's deeply ingrained in our being, isn't it? The original sin. And all of us are shot through with that. Uh, the pride that uh, pervades the very flesh of our bones. Gregory of Nyssa, again, said that there is no evil that so wounds our souls as pride. There is no evil that so wounds our souls as pride. And so rather than focusing on ourselves, because that's the first thing, is self-evaluation and pondering who we are as an individual, but rather than focusing on ourselves and trying to hunt down those prideful elements in each one of our characters, this discipline of voluntary humility causes us to shift focus. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us in these weeks we've been in the book of Ephesians. But remember in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer there reminds us to look to Jesus, the source and fulfillment of our faith. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners. Ancient commentators of this text did marginal notes, and one of those marginal notes, they, they sought to seek an interpretation that goes like this. Look to Jesus, the source and fulfillment of our faith, who endured such hostility from sinners against themselves. That's profound because really that's what pride is. It's a sin against ourselves as well as others and against God himself. And so Jesus voluntarily humbled himself. He endured both the hostility of God, our hostility against God and the hostility we have against our very selves. The Spirit invites us to shift our focus. He invites us to shift our focus off ourselves and look to Jesus, not only who carries the weight of the world, but even the hostility against ourselves that is represented in his pierced hands and his spear thrust side. I remind you again that when we get to heaven, the only signs or symbols of sin in this world will be the scars on Jesus' hands, his side, and his feet, where he took the sin of the world upon himself. Well, when we think of our work, when we think of the weight of the world, when we think of life and what's coming as God grants us our days, I think of Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am weak and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And again, we come to Ephesians, to this passage of Scripture, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where we have been uh, studying the last several weeks. Remember, that portion is an application of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1 through 3, 2 and 3 are the uh, positional truths that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is worth reading those through time and time again to remind yourself of what God has blessed you with. 
and what Jesus Christ has done for you. And now in 4, 5, and 6, he is applying the wealth that we have into our walk. In other words, how we live out our lives. We turn our attention to the spirit-filled life. As Wes read for us there, uh, be filled by the spirit is the command back in chapter 5 and through the rest of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, it flows out of that command to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we come to this passage here in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Remember, the Apostle Paul has been talking about our homes and our homeland security, if you will, and he starts with marriage, wives and husbands. He goes on to parenting and children. And those relationships, we looked at that last week. And today, it's slaves and masters. And uh, we think that, well, what does that have to do with us? Uh, And we need to put it into historical context, first of all. Uh, I want to tell you, if you don't already know, that it's estimated in the first century in the Roman Empire, there were over 60 million slaves. It was the technological manpower engine of the empire. The empire depended upon slavery for its well-being. And slaves could be people who were in debt and who uh, just uh, put themselves into slavery to pay their debt, or they were captives from campaigns that the Roman army uh, took on. Uh, There were a lot of different reasons. Different people were slaves, and they had the full gamut from uh, just your base laborers up to very strong intellectuals who taught the Roman children. And so there were a number. There were at least 60 million slaves. And obviously, since the Apostle Paul is addressing them here, slaves and masters, they were part of the local church in Ephesus, uh, which when we think about it is a little bit staggering that there were two radically different classes of people in this crossroads of the Roman Empire. And uh, so he's addressing slaves and masters. And thankfully, Uh, The institution of slavery, although it rears its ugly head from time to time, and even I understand in my reading, even in our own country, there is uh, underground slavery that is going on, but it rears its head from time to time. But the institution uh, has been quashed uh, in many, many countries and in many, many ways. But in both Greek and Roman cultures, most slaves had no legal rights, were treated as commercial commodities, And Roman citizens came to look on work as beneath their dignity, and the entire empire gradually became to function largely by slave power. They were bought, traded, used, discarded as heartlessly if they were animals or tools. And yet today we're talking about spirit-filled service. Of course, the application, which is obvious to us, is employees and employers. How do we get along in the workplace? What is the Apostle Paul talking about in a modern-day application. The application of this teaching on slaves and masters is relevant to our work relationships wherever you find yourself. But I think it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just your place at work for so many hours a week, but it's about all of our relationships and about this idea of service. No job is simply merely work, and no relationship is merely a relationship but it's a context for relating Christ to the context we find ourselves in. Uh, Like I said, no job is merely work. It's a context for serving Christ. And therefore, the question before us becomes, am I going to yield my will, in other words, my own pride, to God's will to humble myself and allow him to influence my thoughts, my speech, my actions every moment 
of every day. Well, we certainly do live in turbulent times, adverse times. And even though we enjoy great freedoms in this country, we watch and see whether it's on a cultural level, a social level, political level, religious level, or technological level. Wherever it is, we see a lot of change, a lot of turbulence, and we find that. And so the Apostle Paul is going to remind us how to live wisely during turbulent times because every time period seems to be adverse and turbulent, doesn't it? The sin of the world seems to pervade in man's sin, nature, and pride always is at war with God. In fact, one author called it the long war against God. And uh, that is uh, what we are facing here. So how do we live wisely in turbulent times? Well, again, the key, we go back to chapter 5, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk or live, not as unwise men, but as wise. So to walk wisely, what does that look like? Well, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 is the command, the imperative verb there is to be filled. And there are results of choosing correctly. And be filled with the Holy Spirit is an issue of influence. What influences your life? What influences you the most? I think it was Brother Andrew who said while he was doing dishes in the monastery one day that he was practicing the presence of Christ. Practicing the presence of Christ. I like that. In what we would call our very mundane activities, am I practicing the presence of Christ? Am I allowing God's Holy Spirit to influence me, not like a control of a hand in a glove, but influence me, my thoughts, my actions, my activities, that I have a God consciousness. Filling of the Holy Spirit is not about getting more of the Holy Spirit into our lives, but allowing the Holy Spirit more of us. That's what it is. And there are certain results. If you question, am I filled with the Holy Spirit on any given moment? He tells us in verses 19 through 21, four results of being filled by the Holy Spirit. I should ask those of you who've been with us, what are those things? The first one, of course, is fellowship in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Speaking to one another, that's the key. The direction is one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, we are fellowshipping, which is the word koinonia, which means Christ is at the center, and we influence and encourage one another. Fellowship. The second one is the worship of the Lord, verse 19. Uh, songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice the direction to God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's worship is another result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 20 is gratitude. And verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So you will have a thankful attitude as you go through life. You cannot be a grumbler, a complainer, a criticizer if you are thankful. Those are two different founts. One is the bitter water and one is the sweet water that comes from gratitude. And then finally, verse 21, submission and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Notice it's uh, into one another in the fear of Christ or reverence of Christ. This is what he has called us to. And this battles against our pride, doesn't it? We don't want to be submissive in our flesh. We rebel against that. And so the Apostle Paul, in order to illustrate what it means to be submissive to one another, this mutual submission, he illustrates it in marriages, in parenting, and today in the workplace, today in the workplace. And so in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we have his instructions in the workplace. Now, he's addressing slaves and masters, 
The word doulos there, which is translated slaves, is sometimes translated bondservant. The idea is you're serving another. You are putting down your own prideful desires to serve another, and we'll see why we are to do that. So how are Holy Spirit-filled employees to live? Now, some of you are retired, but you can encourage others who are still in the workforce, in the workplace, uh, to continue on, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. How are spirit-filled employees to live? And first of all, look at verse 5. It says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. He's talking about our earthly bosses, if you will. And whether or not you're an employee or an employer, whether you are a laborer or a superintendent, a boss, wherever you find yourself, we are to be obedient. And he tells us, as to Christ. He tells us there in verse 5, as to Christ, at the end of verse 5. That is the key, be obedient as to Christ. Uh, Some of you may have known the name uh, Harry Ironside, Harry Ironside was an evangelist, a Bible teacher, a Bible scholar, and teacher. He, he wrote many, many commentaries back in the mid part of the 19th or 20th century. He was quite a character, but when he was a young man, he worked in a shoe shop where they actually built shoes. He learned how to make shoes, and uh, so he learned the whole picture of obedience and wholehearted dedication. And uh, he learned it early in his life while working for a Christian shoemaker. Uh, Harry's job was to prepare the leather for the soles. He would cut a piece of cowhide to size, soak it in water, and then pound it with a flat-headed hammer until it was hard and dry. It was a wearisome, wearisome process, he relates, and he wished it could be avoided. And Harry would often go to another shoe shop nearby and watch his employer's competitor build shoes. The man, this man did not pound the leather after it came out of the water. Instead, he immediately nailed it to the shoe he was making. One day, Harry approached this competitor and said, I noticed that you put the soles on while they are still wet. Are they just as good as if they were pounded and dry? And with a wink and a cynical smile, the competitor said, no, but the customer comes back much quicker this way, my boy. Young Harry, he relates, ran back to his employer and suggested that perhaps they were wasting their time by preparing that leather sole so carefully. Upon hearing this, his employer took out his Bible and read Colossians 3.23 to him and said, Harry, I do not make shoes just for the money. I'm doing it for the glory of God. If at the judgment seat of Christ I should have to view every shoe that I've ever made, I don't want to hear the Lord said, Dan, that was a very poor job. You didn't do your best. I want to see his smile and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It was a lesson in practical Christian ethics that Harry Ironside never forgot. Obedience as to Christ. Whatever your job is, whatever your employer is, wherever you work, and you may work for yourself, but ultimately it is as to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When I worked, some of you know, many of you know, that I worked heavy equipment in forest road construction in western Montana before going to seminary. I spent 11 years there, and uh, in building forest roads, of course, there's a lot of water to control, and we'd have to put in culverts. And one day, I was a brand-new Christian, and for whatever reason, I'd been exposed to this passage, probably my pastor at the church we were going to. 
in teaching, and I was down in the bottom of that trench we had dug, and it was raining, and it was cold, and it was muddy, and there was snow all over the place. We were had shovels, and we were trying to get this culvert in, and uh, I was just really complaining in my soul about my work. You know, it was just miserable. And then this passage came to me and bringing glory to God through our work. And it just opened up my eyes to who I was really working for. And it changed my whole attitude about my work. And uh, I realized and recognized that the mud didn't change, the snow didn't change, the rain didn't change, the cold weather, the miserable conditions. But yet God changed my heart about what I was doing. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. And the secondly, not only obedient as to Christ, but the second part of verse 5, we, the employees are supposed to, if you're Holy Spirit filled, you will be respectful in your work. Look again at the second part of verse 5. Uh, Slaves, be obedient to all your masters according to the flesh and fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Sincerity of heart, respectfully. Indira Gandhi in India said that her grandfather once told me that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who do the work and those who take the credit. He said, she related that he told me to try to be in the first group because there was less competition there. (laughs) So remember Indira Gandhi there, those who do the work and those who take the credit. So respectfully as to Christ. The third one is conscientiously, look at verse 6 with me, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, as slaves of Christ, conscientious in our work. I also, when I worked in the woods, worked with a guy, he would work really hard if the boss was around, but if the boss wasn't around, he was a slacker, and he would hide out or do other things, and uh, he was an example of one who was doing it for the eye service of man and not for Christ. Uh, The U.S. Marines in World War II adopted a slogan, and we know it as gung-ho. We talk about a gung-ho person, and they're one that is excited and wanting to get the job done. Uh, It comes from the Chinese, although it's Americanized extremely, but it basically means to work and to work in harmony. And that's the idea. As Christians, we are to be gung-ho, working together in harmony uh, as slaves of Christ, as these bond servants of Christ. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus. And so conscientiously. And then fourthly, serving enthusiastically. Look at verse 7. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. To be serving enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. I read the story about a young man who was working in a store. And he moved so slow that his boss asked him if he'd ever been to the zoo. He said, no, I've never been to the zoo. He said, well, you should go and watch the turtles zipping by because (laughs) you are moving kind of slow, you know. And we all have those days where we move slower than turtles. But, you know, it should not be a lifestyle. Serving enthusiastically. Uh, I understand in the African nation of Ghana that in the dominant language there that uh, people don't ask, what is your religion? That's not the way they ask that question, but they ask, whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? And I like that because regardless of denominational loyalties or official creeds, our true God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one we serve. We can have lots of differences with different people theologically, but yet whom 
do we serve? And at your workplace, whom do you serve? And the reminder here is that you ultimately serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 8 contains the promise, the promise, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So no matter what, the Lord Jesus Christ is taking account. And so this is that idea of mutual submission, the promise from the Lord. Verse 9 then then turns from the slaves to the masters or from the employees to spirit-filled masters or employers, bosses, superintendents, wherever you find yourself. And notice in verse 9, and masters, notice this phrase, do the same things to them. What are the same things? Well, the same things are obedience, respectfulness, conscientiously, enthusiastically. The same things. He's repeating that it applies here. But then he goes on to say, and give up threatening and knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and therefore there's no partiality with him. There is equality. There is practicing the golden rule. The same things. There is justice. Threaten not. And as brothers, know that we all have the same master. One time in Chicago, I heard then uh, President Emeritus of Moody Bible Institute, his name was George Sweeting, and he was talking about this issue of employment and accountability and serving as the president of Moody Bible Institute. And you think of that, and you think that's kind of the pinnacle point in that institution of, of, boy, you don't work for anybody, but he corrected us on that. He said he was accountable to the board of corporate members, accountable to the thousands of financial supporters of Moody Bible Institute, accountable to the 1,000-plus employees of Moody Bible Institute, accountable to all the alumni, accountable to the full-time students and to the part-time students of Moody Bible Institute. And he was also accountable to all the Christian people the world over who are affected directly or indirectly by the product of that educational institution. But he said, mostly and finally, he is accountable to God. That was the most important thing. Whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? In the workplace where we spend a lot of time, in the workplace, wherever you find yourself, an employee or employer, and the only way we can do it, the encouragement for the workplace is goes back to chapter 5, verse 18, is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the influence that God consciousness that practicing the presence of Christ every day. That's the encouragement. Submission is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. Pride is not the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. Whether you're an employee or employer, whether a child or a parent, whether a husband or a wife, the Holy Spirit is the key to success, to peace in all of those relationships. Uh, Are you willing to play the counter-melody to whoever you're with? In business, in the home, in parenting, you must decide. Now back to that quality of humility. We are going to, in a few moments, observe the Lord's table together. And if I'll ask the men to come up who are going to help serve, or those who are going to help serve. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the whole issue of service and servanthood and thinking about uh, what it means to celebrate the Lord's table together. And uh, I was reading recently out of Hebrews chapter 11. It is probably, at least to me and in my mind, the most haunting passage in all of Scripture. 
maybe I'm overemphasizing it, but you know Hebrews chapter 11 is a relation of the, 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 the faithful. And he names, uh, the writer of Hebrews names all of these people. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. He talks about Abel. He talks about Enoch. He talks about <clears throat> all sorts of people. Noah, and he names them all. But we get down clear after this whole list of the triumphs of faith, we get to verse 36, and it says, And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, and I would say that's a generic men, meaning men and women, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, meaning New Testament saints, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. But I think of these unnamed individuals, and there's a whole description here of this, and it just haunts me that these are people who are not prideful. These were people who lived for the Lord Jesus Christ no matter the cost, no matter the cost, and they tell us what we remember here. I recently uh, did some research. I read about uh, the most gross, uh, I mean the highest grossing, maybe it was gross too, the highest grossing animated film to date was one released in 2017 last year, still very popular. It's going to gross over a billion dollars. It's won Academy Awards is the animated film Coco. Now, I've not seen it. Some of you have probably seen it. Uh, but in that film, is my understanding as I read about it, in the movie, a boy from Mexico uh, travels to the land of the dead because it's uh, set in Mexico, the day of the dead. And this movie Coco is set around that day of the dead. And in that movie, the basically says that people who have died are either well-off or poor, off because of how people remember them in the land of the living. Once a person in the land of the dead is completely forgotten, they cease to exist. So the more you're remembered, the more famous you are, if you will, uh, the more you have eternal life. And of course, theologically, I hope you're finding a problem uh, with this movie. You don't have to be a scholar to realize that the theology is really terrible because everybody in this movie goes to the same place when they die. Greatness in the world is uh, to come is determined by how many people remember you. Popularity in this world means riches in the world to come. And, you know, if this were true, then obviously the great celebrities that surround us, the rock stars, famous athletes that have made it in this life, would live on forever in this movie. And... Uh, I don't know if it addressed the other part of the story. You know, Hitler is remembered by millions, and so is Timothy McVeigh. And yet, uh, in their theology of this movie, would they be in the land of the dead forever and ever? Uh, it's not the question here, though. The Bible tells us who will be great in the kingdom of God, and that is those who are faithful to the Lord in this life. A vast majority of time, these kinds of people are not famous in this life. They do not have a large following. Like those ones in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, others, others that are not even named. The author of Hebrews tells us that there are some who will have a better resurrection and they will be rich in the kingdom. We don't even know their names. He simply identifies them as others. 
we are reminded that Jesus said it is not a good thing when the world says good things about us. And so today as we come together to observe the bread and the cup, it is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome and invited to participate. In fact, Scripture tells us that you are commanded to participate in the Lord's table because it serves as a reminder. It's a memorial feast that we look back and remember what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, twice in the central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus tells his followers, remember this, remember me, remember me. And uh, again, I challenge you, what do you remember about the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you go back to your moment of salvation. If you can't remember the moment, like I can't remember the moment, but I know I'm changed from who I used to be. I'm no longer who I used to be. And remember what Jesus Christ has done for me as revealed through Scripture. And we don't want to turn this into a ritual. A ritual is a mindless exercise. And if anything, Jesus says, remember, that takes brain power. And so we need to remember what Christ has done for us. And so he's provided us with very simple elements. And that last Passover recorded for us in Luke chapter 22, he took the cup and he took the bread and distributed it. And he told them to remember him. And so he instituted new meaning because he was the fulfillment of the anticipation of the Passover. At that time, he was the one who fulfilled the longing of Israel as they celebrated the Passover. And he took those elements and put new spiritual meaning to them. And so this morning, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread and he gave thanks. And I'm going to ask Greg Hewitt to give thanks for the bread this morning. <laughs> 